it was the the air, the place, the trees, the wine, the company, the, the peacefulness, and the the capacity of these two violinists. And it just was it's one of those things that you you realize that there's no filtering; it just comes somehow gets right into your soul without any mediation. <laughs> Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. Clay Jenkinson is an award-winning humanities scholar, author, actor, documentarian, and public radio producer. He grew up in North Dakota and studied Renaissance English literature at the University of Minnesota and the University of Colorado. He was a Rhodes Scholar studying at Oxford. Today, he is a distinguished scholar of the humanities at Bismarck State College and the founder of the Theodore Roosevelt Center at Dickinson State University. He is also one of the world's foremost authorities on the life and work of Thomas Jefferson. I first heard Clay portray our nation's third president while listening to a weekly radio program he produces and hosts called The Jefferson Radio Hour that aired on my local public radio station. Some years later, when I heard he was coming to give a presentation in Olympia, Washington, I got in touch with him and asked if we might have a talk about Thomas Jefferson's love affair with the violin. Here is that conversation. Well, I'm a North Dakotan, and, and the heritage of North Dakota has been agrarian. We were founded during the Homestead era. And at one point, we had more small towns of 2,500 or fewer than any other state. And we have one of the few family farm protection laws in the country. Every farm in North Dakota has to be owned by a family or a family corporation. But Exxon and Monsanto can't own land in North Dakota. They can't farm. So we've been kind of a Jeffersonian place. And suddenly... There's rapid industrialization occurring on the Great Plains, and the people of North Dakota don't have the wherewithal any longer in their hearts or their souls or their even their guts to resist. They, For some reason, they've just decided that the profit and the buzz that North Dakota now matters and the state surpluses and all the, the good things are worth it and that all of the downside, which is not just to the land and the water and the air, but it's to the character of the people of North Dakota, they've decided that that's the cost of doing business or that's inevitable or this is modernity. And there's no, there's no voice in North Dakota to say, well, wait a minute. There must be higher values than extraction and profit that are central to our lives, and if there aren't, then what happened? How did we, what, how did we break with that heritage? It's a very serious issue, and I don't know the answer to it, but I'm very disappointed that there isn't a livelier conversation in North Dakota and on the Great Plains about who we are and what we value and where we came from and what matters. So we'll see what happens, but... I, I can't believe that this is good for the soul of North Dakota. It might be good for the budget of North Dakota, but I don't think that it's 
honoring the deepest traditions of the Jeffersonian agrarian heritage or even North Dakota's own rural heritage. But if there were if there were a conversation going on about this, a hand-wringing conversation about, well, what, how much is enough? How do we preserve that which we most value? And will this change us in some measurable ways and not all for the good? Then I'd feel optimistic because I think that robust conversation is precisely what a democratic society does in the face of unprecedented change. But I don't see it. It, if you actually consulted the 700,000 North Dakotans, if you had a way of polling them, I would say that the predominant view is drill, baby, drill. And so this is troubling. I think there's a, a real element of time or our relationship as human beings to time, which I think has been radically altered by technology. Um, I mean, it's so hard to imagine a time of in Jefferson's day where how long it took just to get someplace or how long a message took. You know, and then the automobile comes along and then the telephone and all these things. And technology has in it a kind of pacing, much of the modern technology does. I mean, just a refresh rate on a, on a television. We look at it, it looks like it's solid, but it, it's, you know, 75 or 80 hertz per second. It's, it's flickering. You see it in a movie when you see televisions on a movie. So you have this pacing, this sense that time is almost compressing to the place where I'm not so sure people believe in the next generation. I just came back from West Virginia where I used to live, and I cannot live in the state because of the mountaintop removal. It is so mad and so heartbreaking that to get a, a seam of coal a couple of feet deep, they'll take off the top of a mountain. Well, what I say about that in North Dakota is that the, the shale is 13,000 feet below the surface. So first you go down more than two miles, almost three miles with pipe. And then they bend it in a 90-degree angle, which it sounds impossible to me if you're thinking of stiff pipe, but they do it. And then they run it out 10,000 or 15,000 feet. And then they frack it. And it costs about between 12 and $20 million to bring in a fracking well. And it takes 2,000 truck events. So 2,000 semis have to appear at that wellhead, it can be the same semi 2,000 times or four semis 500 times, but 2,000 truck events to service this. And then they get X number of barrels of oil over a 10-year period from this. So we must really want it. We must really want this if we're willing to dig down two and a half miles into the earth and then to go three miles out and to have 2,000 truck events and I sometimes say, if you found a lost painting by Leonardo da Vinci at 13,000 feet or a Mozart um, orchestral piece, I doubt that we would spend $12 million to go get it. I doubt that, that if we knew that the greatest lost painting of da Vinci was down there, that we, as our culture would have the commitment to spend that kind of money to go get this thing. But we have no... No one even blanches at the idea that you would do this routinely. There are going to be 70,000 wells in North Dakota. We do it over and over and over again. So it's sort of like that that verse in Matthew where you're 
where your heart is, that, that'll tell you who you are. And the fact that that's what we give our best energies to doing and not even taking a tiny bit off the top to fund orchestras or to build museums or to digitize old uh, photographs that we don't even give uh, some tiny little skim to the broader culture tells us exactly who we are. And so you know, what would it take for you to go find a, a lost violin at 13,000 feet? Uh, no one would do it. In the world of these Italian violins, in fact, there has been such an inflation in their value, and it is, it's rocking the violin world because what's driving it are not musicians who want to have that instrument to play. It's, well, it's, it has been collectors even in the past. It's, it's investment bankers. It's people and, that have looked at the return on these old Italian violins and realized nobody's ever lost any money on them. They just continuously have gone up, and they've invested real money. It's also quite uh, a fluid uh, asset. You know, if you want to take Portable $5 million dollars to Switzerland, you get on a plane and, you know, you go through customs, well, it's your violin. I mean, who's to know? So, of course. So there is this money mechanism playing out in so many areas. And around the violin particularly is what I'm, I'm exploring in this radio series, among other things. I love the old Taoist phrase, action without reflection leads to the evil of bewilderment. Hmm. Well, we're all bewildered now, I think. Yeah. I think we've monetized everything. You know, we're trying to monetize everything. So they'll find a bottle that they think was Jefferson's wine because he uh, had in glass embossed his initials on some of the bottles of wine that he owned. You know, back in Jefferson's time, you didn't necessarily buy wine in bottles any more than you bought books and bindings. You bought wine and then you decided how you want it decanted or shipped. And so Jefferson had these bottles that said TJ or TI, and today someone will discover one or think they discovered one and it'll sell for $10 million or $4 million. It's vinegar. It's of no value except insofar as it's a bottle of wine that Thomas Jefferson ordered or held in his hands. There's a whole uh, forgery industry that grows to meet this demand. But then you ask, well, what do you think you're really doing when you're buying something like this? What What is it that you're buying? I mean, if Jefferson would say, you'd be better off buying five vines and trying to grow wine in your backyard than to buy a celebrity bottle of vinegar to, so that you can feel that you're somehow in contact with uh, this great tradition. And I think we've done that for almost everything in our lives, and I think it really has damaged us that there's, I, I increasingly in my own life try to do things that can have no monetary application of any sort because they give me a sense of virtue or purity or that something is off the grid of monetization. I'm thinking about, again, the violin world, the, uh, the violin that, I'm not going to say alleged because there has been some due diligence done to prove that it was the violin that survived the sinking of the Titanic. I think it brought 900,000 pounds at auction in England. And it's it's not an exceptional violin by any means. So it is all this... It's a famous violin. It has this mythology attached to it. And really, these have become um, 
power objects, sacred objects. People feel if they're around them that somehow something's going to rub off on us. But it's in the context, which is what you were saying earlier, and the absurd quality to this is we don't seem to really value history in any meaningful way in terms of the way we teach it, the way we value it. Uh, historians are not sitting at the tables of power right now, I don't think, nor are artists. Um, somebody said the, all the historians are over there in that sandbox. Hmm. And they, they kind of look at it. They, they thought it all started with the uh, McCarthy hearings where there really was a real shift in terms of who was going to really make decisions about what happens and uh, what value systems they bring to it. No, we're seeing it with this whole Benghazi madness. So four people die in the Benghazi raid in 2012, and it's become one of the biggest political crises of my lifetime, at least in the eyes of some people. And yet, you know, almost 5,000 Americans alone died in the war in Iraq. There should be some proportionality to our sense of concern or outrage, but there isn't. I mean, we, we live in a time when we can falsely value things and get away with it because there are, we've, we've, we've fractured the culture so that everyone finds their own echo chamber. When I was growing up in North Dakota in the 1960s and 70s, there were three television stations. That's it. And really only two because ABC didn't become a news organization until almost 1970. I think it was 1968. And so when something happened, when Malcolm X was assassinated or when there were race riots in Washington, D.C. or Detroit, people would turn on CBS and hear what Eric Severide was going to say about it because he was our national chorus. He was like a Greek chorus. And he would reflect on it. You might agree with him and you might disagree with him. He might be obscure. But you knew that he was your voice, that if you, if you wanted some sort of a clarification on this, you probably weren't going to get it in church on Sunday. You weren't going to get it from your local newspaper's editorial board. But there were some places to turn. And as a culture, we then turned together to Eric Severide or John Chancellor when Robert Kennedy was killed or when Saigon fell in 1975. But today you don't do that. Today I go to Fox and you go to MSNBC or or you're Glenn Beck and I'm Rachel Maddow and we go into these echo chambers that that reinforce our prejudices or our ways of seeing, our very narrow lens. And it has created it has taken the public square out of the national discourse. There's no there's no place where we have to meet to be civil with each other and to engage in an actual conversation about who we are and what matters. So, Thomas Jefferson. My wife and I were over in Italy in Cremona, and uh, we were there to do some recording of some violin makers and also this, uh, these uh, three wonderful musicians, the Carpenters, a family, and they were going to perform there. And so they had a grand opening the night before. Well, they have these openings of museums once a month, where they stay open very late, and mostly it's locals that all come in. So the Violin Museum was going to have one of these kind of big parties. And since we were there and they noticed we had our, I had my fiddle and my wife had her banjo, they said, we'd like you to play. You know, somewhere there were a lot of things going on. And we had not seen a lot of folk music in Italy, especially related to the violin, maybe accordion, maybe mandolin. So we were a bit intimidated. 
And then I talked to the uh, president of the board of the museum, and he, he's very good, speaks English very well, uh, Dr. Bodini. And I said, well, I need somebody to translate for me. And uh, he said, well, I'll do that. And I said, okay, because I, was, uh, I wasn't sure how the audience would respond to what I play, which is really almost frontier music. It's that old Southern Appalachian fiddle music that sort of predates bluegrass. And I found the best way to talk about it was to bring Thomas Jefferson into it right off the bat and say, you know, here's this president. Of course, they all knew Thomas Jefferson. And to say he was a man who uh, would play what we now call today more courtly music, more of the um, classical type music. But then again, on the Lewis and Clark expedition, there were two fiddlers, from what I understand, who made that journey. And there are places in the journals where they talk about how important that music was after a very long day, uh, sort of lift everyone's spirits. So anything you want to talk about, Thomas Jefferson and his love affair with the violin, I would be fascinated with. I'm no expert in, in the history of the fiddle in the United States, but in Jefferson's time, uh, every house had to have its own musicians because there was no way of playing recorded music. So if you wanted to hear Bach, you had to make Bach. There was no way to uh, avoid having people who could play the pianoforte or the harpsichord or the fiddle or whatever. And every daughter in every well-to-do family was expected to play an instrument or sing. And so it's a bit like a scene out of a Jane Austen novel that after the tablecloth has been removed, you go to the withdrawing room and somebody then suggests music. And it occurs, it's not exactly background music, but it's not a concert either. It's somewhere in between. People listen for a while and then they res return to their conversation. So when Jefferson was a boy growing up in a well-off household, but not a wealthy one, there were itinerant music masters who would wander around Virginia or Pennsylvania or New York. They would come from Europe, usually, or often Italian, and the local farmers would, plantation owners would subscribe to have that person in their district for a few weeks or a few months, and then all the people who wanted to learn would take lessons from that music master. And there were dancing masters and fencing masters and music masters and, and sometimes people who do, did elocution. So Jefferson started playing the fiddle when he was a boy, when he was uh, nine or 10 years old. And he then became, because he's Jefferson, he had deep discipline. You know, most people got a smattering of this sort of thing, but Jefferson really decided to master it. And so he says that he practiced three hours a day for many years. If you practice that much, you're going to become pretty good, I think. And so Jefferson became a, a violinist. You know, there was frontier fiddling, and there was a lot of it, and we maybe associate that with Lewis and Clark or even with Patrick Henry that at, a, at some sort of a dinner party or a weekend, somebody with a fiddle would take up that fiddle and make music, and there would be frontier reels, and it was, it was quite a bit like frontier music uh, or Appalachian music. But Jefferson went farther. He became an actual violinist, although he did not like to call himself one. He was always very modest about his accomplishments. But during the war, the revolution, there was a German prisoner of war camp near Charlottesville, near Jefferson's home. And the wife of a German officer 
got to know Jefferson pretty well. He had musicales at Monticello for these people. This was very genteel age. And so these enemies were having dinner parties and, and, and events. And Jefferson played the violin. And she said that Jefferson was the greatest violinist that she ever heard. That's pretty high praise. And I don't think Jefferson would accept that. But he probably was at the level of being a minor concert violinist by today's standards. That's taking it a lot farther than most. Someone like Patrick Henry was probably a very able fiddler and could probably do some Corelli or some Bach or if necessary, but, but veered more towards a more popular brand of folk music at the time. But Jefferson was very sober, uh, disciplined, serious, earnest young man, and he, he became a master. And when he was at William and Mary, his, his mentor, William Small, who was a member of the Scottish Enlightenment, used to take Jefferson over to the capital in Williamsburg, where Governor Fauquier uh, held small dinner parties for Jefferson, who was just a kid, for his mentor, William Small, and for another man who became his mentor, George Wythe. So the four of them had these parties with servants and so on, but they were, these were stag parties. And afterwards, Jefferson said they would each take out their instrument. I'm sure they were, I'm sure they were all string instruments. And they would make music in a quartet. That sounds wonderful. It must have been something to be, for young Jefferson to be drawn into that a pretty exalted circle of conversation and enlightenment and and music. But you can imagine him, probably the most solemn member of that quartet, thrilled and a little bit intimidated to be with such powerful and learned men, but being taken seriously by them and being regarded as good enough musically uh, to participate in these things. So you almost have the story of Washington wanting to improve his lot and his social status, reading these books about etiquette and copying them by hand and getting his penmanship and so forth as a portal for him. It eventually served him extremely well, you know, in his, his official capacity. So I think you're saying that uh, with Jefferson, this music, this commitment to music he made earlier became really a portal into a... It was one of the portals. So the difference between Jefferson and Washington is Washington had to write out those catechisms Jefferson would never have done that. That would be to reveal too much about his own sense of himself. He just did it. If Jefferson's going to be an archaeologist, he's going to be a master archaeologist, which he was. He helped to invent uh, the kind of um, uh, carefully measured archaeology that we now take for granted. He, he mastered penmanship. Uh, you know, other people just have a, a way of handwriting. Jefferson, without telling us quite how, uh, perfected his own handwriting until it's a, it's a form of art. When you see a Jefferson document, you immediately know that it's Jefferson and not Patrick Henry and not John Adams. And there's a beauty to it. There's an aesthetic to it that you can hardly believe that anyone could provide such a thing. You know, it's one thing to write. You know, we, we tap things out on our word processors. We take for granted the transmission of the idea to the printed page, but for Jefferson, that intermediate step of the page itself had its own aesthetic, and he felt duty-bound to make it beautiful, certainly legible, but both. He did this with everything. His gardens have this kind of fastidiousness. Uh, his conversation, he was not the kind of person who would be throwing away language. He was very studied, careful, but not stilted. 
just he's mastered his prose style. He's mastered his architectural style. He's mastered his music. This is Thomas Jefferson. And so the fiddle becomes one of the many lenses through which you can look at this genius. I mean, if, if genius is um, defined as, a, as an infinite capacity for taking pains, that's Thomas Jefferson. He took pains with everything he did. And I can't imagine that he would ever... He tells a story about being at a dinner at a weekend party during the Christmas holidays with Patrick Henry, and Henry pulls out his fiddle, and Henry was a great charismatic and a storyteller and a kind of a sexual predator, and everyone was thrilled by this man who was fiddling. I don't think Jefferson could do that. I think Jefferson waits until there's quiet, and then he plays this exquisite piece from Corelli, and everyone's listening, and there's no, he's not a show-off. He's trying to produce real purity He's not doing this as a, as a way of seducing women or being the center of attention. He's doing this because the music deserves that level of mastery. So when he was in Paris later after the war, did he continue to play as far as you know? And whatever you know, journals that he, he talked about his violin, of course, I'm fascinated by. Well, he didn't play forever because when he was in Europe— in 1786, he met a woman named Maria Cosway, who was a painter and a musician and a famous coquette. She was she had she sort of was a professional breaker of men's hearts, and Jefferson was drawn into her orbit like everybody else, and he fell in love with her. This was really maybe the deepest love of his life, certainly the most the most um, purely passionate love of his life. And even more interestingly, she fell in love with him. You know, she was the kind of person who broke men's hearts, but suddenly she was drawn to this earnest American. And so they had this remarkable, probably platonic relationship. She was married, but it was a marriage of mere convenience. And she and Jefferson had this sort of magnificent interlude together where they would go to parks and go to salons and go to great dinner parties and play music. And she made music and Jefferson made music. And I think music was one of the glues that brought them t together because she had a very beautiful voice, says Jefferson. And he had, he, he had already learned to play music with women when he was courting his, his wife, Martha, back in 1771 and 1772. So you can imagine this. But then somehow she, he, either he or she, somehow inspired him to jump over a fence and he, and he fell and broke his right wrist. He falls over this stile or this fence and breaks his wrist, and then he had it set. This was when barbers were also bone setters, and it was badly set, and he never regained full use of that hand. And he regarded it, excuse the pun, as kind of a Freudian slip, that this was a, this was a sign of his folly for jumping over a fence to impress a woman. And he was embarrassed about it, but he never played the violin again after that. I mean, he probably played a little, but he never made it an issue after that. He actually went on his wine tour of France in 1787 with the excuse that he was going to Aix-en-Provence to, to use the waters, the mineral waters there, to try to heal or to ease the suffering in that hand, but it didn't work. And so Jefferson's life as a musician kind of screeches to a halt when he's in his 40s because of this accident that occurred I'm sure when he was 60 years old, you could talk him into getting out his fiddle, but I doubt that he ever played with any sense of, of joy anymore because for him to be impaired would defeat the purpose. And he wants, whatever Jefferson does, he wants to do with great purity. So 
so we know that much. We we also know that he owned at least three violins, and, and one of them was a kit. One one was a miniature. So he he had he owned a pretty good violin as a young man, and then when the revolution came, a man named John Randolph, who was a cousin of Jefferson's, moved was a Tory and moved back to England, and Jefferson wrote him a letter and said. Gee, I hate it that you're leaving and it's too bad the revolution has occurred. But since you're leaving, I'm sure you don't want to take your violin, which was apparently a very fine violin, and Jefferson bought it from him. And so that was his second violin. And then he wanted a miniature, like they were called kit violins, for traveling so that he could have a little portable that he could take when he was in a carriage or when he was riding horseback somewhere. So we know that he had at least three. And the second one, the John Randolph violin, must have been a pretty good instrument because Jefferson knew... He was a discriminating buyer, and he was willing to pay a very large amount of money to, to obtain that instrument. So the late 1600s, you really have the what we now think of as the modern violin coming into its own. I mean, this is Amadi and then Guarneri and Stradivari. And so um, this is most likely the instrument he's playing, not one of the earlier Baroque. No, it would be a later one. It probably was not just manufactured, but it it had been around for a while, but it wasn't one of the early in, uh, instruments, I don't think. I don't know a great deal about this, but Jefferson was not a, um, he, he would not have wanted a signature violin just because it was regarded as valuable. He, he would have wanted a violin that he liked the sound of. You were talking about his wine, and I, and I immediately was already thinking of a story when you were talking about how he drew a lesson from his jumping over the fence. Right. And I want to get to that, a little bit about his ideas about that, whether we are given signs or not. Melvin Wine is this um, fiddler. He, he's now gone, but he was quite legendary in central West Virginia when I was first learning the fiddle, and a lot of people still have such high regard for him. And there's a story that he wound up telling where he was playing for dances. But he was a, he was a religious man, not overly, but, you know, devout in some ways, but he was a great fiddler. And he was playing at some dance, and apparently this quite large, bully kind of man was um, giving a, a young woman a pretty hard time, just, you know, not giving her much room at all. And whether he said something or not, he think he did to this fella. Uh, the fella turned around and said, you know, well, you just, go to hell, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not going to take this from you. And finishes saying that and has a massive heart attack and dies in front mm. of Melvin Wine. And Melvin would not play for dances after that. I don't know. Well, he kept playing because I knew him as a player, but he would no longer for a long time play at dances because he felt this was God's message to him that this was not a place that he should be using his music because of all the things that went on. I don't think Jefferson would uh, would respond to that story. I think he would reject it as superstition. Jefferson was a deist. Uh, he believed that there is a God. He preferred the, the term creator. And he believed that the creator was a sort of celestial physicist who had designed the universe and spun the planets and created the chain of being from mice at the bottom through muskrats and mooses all the way up to mankind. And then that God had walked away and started gravitation and, and then folded his arms and watched his handiwork like a great clock or a, um, a planetarium uh, un, slowly unwind. And Jefferson believed that maybe this creator would step in from time to time to tune the clock a little or reset the orbits, but that he didn't respond to our prayers, that there's no providence. He didn't prefer the 
colonials to England. He didn't side with this soccer team over that one. And God was a sort of absentee landlord in the universe, but but definitely the, the spinner of the universe. And so Jefferson probably took from the Maria Cosway incident where he breaks his arm that he's too old a man to be engaged in this sort of flirtation and that this is a sign that at a certain point you put some things away. And uh, you know he actually said to his daughter that no woman dances after she's married, that you, you dance as a young woman while you're a spinster, while you're a, a, an available bride. But once you marry a, a woman in his genteel society in Virginia, stops dancing. And I think he felt when you trip over a fence because you're trying to impress a married woman, that's probably the time when you stop doing certain things in your life. Of course, it meant that he couldn't play because he broke his wrist, but also that maybe he thought the violin was, um, what would be the word, uh, a frivolous instrument. I don't think he ever thought that because, <laughs> you know, we, you know, it's if I want to hear the best string quartet in the world, or if I want to hear, say, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, within seconds I can get that. I can just dial this up on my smartphone and I can find out what the 10 best productions of anything are, performances, and I have them and I can hear them. There's nothing I can't have access to. So we take this for granted. You know, we've forgotten what live music really represented in the world. But in Jefferson's time, when he was about to marry his wife Martha, he ordered, even though there was a trade embargo on with England, he ordered a pianoforte. And he wanted a very high quality one with special mahogany and great wood. And he wanted just the very best because it was a wedding gift to her. And so he broke the American trade embargo with England to get it. And, and we think, well, that's a little odd. He didn't have a CD player. You know, he didn't have an MP3 player. If he, if he wanted music in his house, they had to produce it. They had to create it. And Jefferson believed that that somehow was more than what we think. You know, we might think it's just another delivery system of music, but that's not how Jefferson saw it. He believed that when you play the clarinet, when you play the oboe, when you play the violin, however imperfectly, you are participating in deeper rhythms and beauties and certitudes of the universe, that you are almost aligning yourself with the music of the spheres. That's why he liked Bach and you know early Baroque, because he felt that this was you were participating in some platonic way in something much, much, much deeper than yourself. That's why he designed buildings based on classical models because he believed that when you walk through a, a, a colonnade that's classically designed with its symmetries that, you, that you, are, you become more rational. You have a greater sense of harmony. And so all these things matter to Jefferson. So I don't think he ever thought that the violin was a frivolous instrument. I think that he thought he had been frivolous to mess around in, in Paris with this woman. And the fact that he couldn't play the violin anymore said nothing about the violin. It said quite a bit about the immaturity of a, of a man who's lusting for a married woman. Let's listen now to a portion of a composition by the 17th century Italian Baroque composer, Archangelo Corelli, as it might have been performed one evening by Thomas Jefferson and his friends at Monticello. It is performed on period instruments by members of the Trail Band on their 1999 music CD, Lewis and Clark.
we had a discussion last night on the telephone, and um, we're at a time in human history, I'm sure people, well, at the time of the American Revolution, I imagine people at that time who really understood what was going on realized this was a, a true game changer, and nobody really knew where it was going, and there was a lot at stake. Right now, with global warming issues, with this huge immigration problem they're having uh, in Europe right now and, and with Russia bombing in Syria, I think thinking people really feel that you know, they want to do what's necessary if they can, make some contribution. You know, if I could put up a bunch of solar panels on my barn or, or start a company that's going to help people do that, I would do it. Musicians are finding themselves, and of course I'm now talking about people who play the violin family of instruments, I think it, almost a quandary with this, or at least that question is there. You know, what is the value of making music? This beautiful music at a time when really it seems like it's all hands on deck. And I know some musicians are dealing with that question. All hands on deck because the world has so many fundamental problems. Yeah, that need to be addressed. And this is a, maybe a frivolous thing to do in the face of the Syrian refugee crisis. Yeah, and maybe not frivolous might not be the word I use, but irrelevant thing to do. And the image that kind of pops into my head, which when we were talking was, because uh, this friend of mine was talking about this chamber music festival that's been held for 25 years in, in up in Vermont. And what a wonderful experience it is for the people who go there, and they just play all this great chamber music. And But he said it's very inward looking. I mean, it's really not concerned with anything else going on in the world. This is kind of this little island of time where everybody makes this music. And uh, I almost had this idea of a Tibetan temple with prayer wheels, you know, this idea that the people in those temples believe that the spinning of those wheels and the saying of those prayers does matter. It does add to the positive love force that maybe is more for light than darkness. But musicians, I think, right now are thinking through that and trying to understand that. And in some way, you just gave some language to that as how Jefferson might view that, although he did not view this personal God that would in any way have any truck with you on any level, but somehow or another, a deeper, almost Taoist idea. I mean, Confucius has a great quote he made one time about these ancient rituals in China, said, where you had music and sacred pantomime and and the ancestors were invited to be an integral part of this experience where everyone was. And Confucius says, uh, if you understood that ritual, truly understood it, you could rule the world as if it spun on your hand. Uh, this is a profoundly imaginative idea that things that are invisible, that are done in private, can have this influence. Well, I think Jefferson believed in mastery. You know, the, what, if you master something, you have aligned yourself with something much bigger than yourself. So there was that. And music is a very is a social tool. I mean, this is he would make take down the weather at dawn and four p.m. every day and make elaborate weather charts. But that's not a social moment. That's a scientific private moment. I think Jefferson really felt that he wanted the University of Virginia to be handsome, so that people who went there would feel that they should rise to their best selves and read the great books and and have civil conversations. He wrote a famous letter to his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, when Jeff, as he was known, was going off to Boston. And Jefferson said, you know, avoid getting into political disputes with people because I'm a famous and controversial man. They'll try to 
um, dispute with you because of who I am. He said, turn away from them as you would from an angry bull. But he said, the best people are born with good humor. It's just there. He said, but most of us aren't. And so, but if you will adopt artificial good humor, if in every situation you respond to rudeness with civility and with generosity of spirit and harmony, if you adopt artificial good humor, it will have several benefits. First of all, it will slightly shame the rude people around you because you'll be showing what civility should look like. And secondly, by engaging in artificial good humor, it will become second nature and it'll be just as interesting as if you were born with this. And he said, if we would all do this, we could live in a truly harmonious republic. So I mean, the thing about Jefferson is if you want to extrapolate from the violin or from this to any, any broader sense, Jefferson believed that a republic only works if we're our best selves. We can't always be our best selves, but we need always to be striving to be our best selves. And so you can't just read. You have to read with a, a commitment to really giving to the author the attention and the soulfulness that that author deserves. And you can't just have a collection of books. You have to order them so that you can find every book. And there is some sort of orderliness to the very taxonomy of your private library. And if you have a garden, you want it to, you, it's not going to be weed-free, but you want it to be as pure as you can make it because each of these things tells the world who you are and it also tells you who you are and what you value. So there's never anything slipshod or slapdash about anything that Jefferson does, including music. He had a very, very large collection of sheet music. Unfortunately, it was dispersed at the time of his death. We would give anything to have that collection in one place now and digitized, but it just doesn't exist any longer. There, there's just something exquisite about Jefferson's way of approaching the world, and it, it reminds me of this sort of Confucianism or this Buddhist notion that it's not as if being able to play Corelli beautifully ha is as important as writing the Declaration of Independence. Clearly, that's not true. But in the little circle that you're in, it has some of that same value because you're you're, everything you do is a gesture about the world you want to live in, and if all those gestures add up, they create a community. And it only takes people like Hamilton saying, that's not true at all, Mr. Jefferson. People are greedy, selfish beings. They're lustful and rapacious and self-interested, and that's how we should organize ourselves. That kind of talk breaks Jefferson's heart because it means you're always just going to be a, a society and not a civilization, that being a civilization requires everybody to be moving towards this higher level of harmony. Jefferson practiced it in his own life. The mistake we now make is that we we are dismissing Jefferson on two fronts. First, because he was a slaveholder, and so now that issue, which is a huge one, is being allowed to eclipse Jefferson in many other areas. It's taken over the Jefferson discourse in some in some dangerous ways. And secondly, we now live in a culture where there is so little mastery left that we, we can dismiss Jefferson as an elitist, or you could only do this because you were an enormously privileged man, Mr. Jefferson. And he didn't see that at all. You know, He said that the, the republic would, would be successful if we were a nation of family farmers who worked modestly hard in their fields by day and at night read Homer in the original Greek. And he meant this. He meant that everyone had to try to be his best self or her best self, and then you have a republic. 
So he didn't think he was an elitist at all. He thought he was very privileged, but that's not the same thing as being an elitist. So tell me your story about how you fell in love with Jefferson and how both studying Jefferson and then portraying Jefferson, taking on his persona, has changed your life. Well, I do a number of characters, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, John Wesley Powell, John Steinbeck, Sir Walter Raleigh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, etc. cetera. Uh, but Jefferson is, is the one that I, who's marked my life. The others are just things one does, and they're all very valuable to me in different ways. But early on when I started doing Jefferson, it was kind of an accident. I was drawn into it by a friend. But when I started doing it, I realized, oh, this is not just a president of the United States. This is not even just the author of the Declaration of Independence. This is one of the most refined and interesting people who ever lived on Earth. And if I portray him, I have to know something about Jefferson and wine and Jefferson and libraries and Jefferson and the violin and Jefferson and penmanship and Jefferson and architecture and Jefferson and paleontology. So in order to to do him with any competence, I have to know something at least, a working vocabulary of wine, and I have to have a working vocabulary of Jefferson and music. And so I haven't done nearly enough in this way, but it's enabled me to have sort of a lifelong continuing education. It's like marrying the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, you, you, to keep up, I have to really work at it. So it's been wonderful in that way. And But, but what I've really fastened on, this is my third decade now of being Jefferson, what I fastened on are two things. One is civility. And Jefferson said in his first inaugural address, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. Uh, we are all Federalists. We are all Republicans. Uh, that, I think, is an essential understanding of America. That, And we've reached the point now where every difference of opinion is a source of rage and outrage and ad hominem attacks and polarization and partisanship. And Jefferson's view was, no, we share more than than we disagree about, and we need to emphasize that if we're going to be a republic. And I've just watched the vulgarization of American culture and the, you know, when I was growing up, if I used the F word in my mother's presence, it would be the, the beginning of a very long crisis. Now, the F word is almost ubiquitous in American culture. It's about to tip into mainstream television, and worse words are being normalized, and pornography is being normalized, and Rage and noise are being normalized, and uh, the wildest kind of personal revelation on Facebook is being normalized. And I don't think this is good for the culture. So civility is one of the areas where I really have come to prize Jefferson. I get a lot of hate mail in what I do. Uh, I live in North Dakota. Uh, my own concerns about the future of the state have, have brought me some hate mail. I invariably respond with Jeffersonian civility. I say, I got your letter, and I take your point, and yes, you're probably right about X and Y and Z, and I've looked into this, and I invite you to read that, and so on. And then at the end of the letter, I always say, but you know, it would have been so much easier to take your letter seriously if it hadn't been filled with hate and personal attacks. You know what? They almost always apologize for that. This artificial good humor actually does work in Jefferson. So civility is one of them. The second thing is agrarianism. 
So I'm not a violinist. I wish I were. I'd love to play the cello, actually. But, but I do, but I am a gardener, and I've taken that piece from Jefferson. And to be a good gardener requires some of the same disciplines and the same sense of patience and the same willingness to fail and experiment and and so on. And I believe that our brand of industrial agriculture is poisoning our bodies and poisoning our souls and that we are going to have to move to a higher Jeffersonian agrarianism at some point. We're not there yet. We're still addicted to the industrial petroleum complex of our food supply. But the best minds that are working on this, Wendell Berry and Michael Pollan and, and others, are, are really showing us the way to a higher agrarianism. And I think that's the future of the world. And I think Jefferson understood that when he said those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, if ever he had a chosen people. I don't think he meant that in any naive way. I think he meant that being intimately involved with the basic supplies and rhythms of your life is an essential part of being a complete human being. And so growing some of your own food is one way especially in his own time, to do that. And so I've been trying to recapitulate those, those two prime Jeffersonian values in my own life. Then there's Jefferson and books, you know, his belief that you have to actually know something about the things that you talk about, Jefferson and science, uh, Jefferson and uh, a sense of optimism about the human condition. There's a whole range of Jeffersonian values, enlightenment values, that I try to incorporate to a certain degree in my own life. But I have to tell you a story about violins. Uh, in doing Jefferson, I have had the chance to go a few times to the Bohemian Grove in Northern California. And as you know, the Bohemian Grove is now sort of a rich man's playground, but it, it began as a Bohemian music camp in the great redwoods near Santa Rosa. And I got to know, um, through Jefferson and Wine, Robert Mondavi. Robert Mondavi, the great Napa Valley pioneer winemaker, and he invited me to work with him because he believed that wine is a work of art, not an alcoholic beverage. And so I went to the Mondavi winery and got to know the Mondavis and took wine classes and gave talks, and it was just a spectacular and very satisfying period of my life. And so on the basis of that, I was going to the Bohemian Grove to give a talk as Jefferson, and I was invited up to the Pelican camp where I had some friends, and Robert Mondavi was a member of the Pelican Camp, and, and once a year he would come to the Grove and he would throw a beautiful luncheon in the Redwoods. Uh, with Everything was perfect, from the napkins to the silverware to the, the quality of the water. And he would then bring his double secret reserve wines, wines that no one ever drinks, and we would drink them. So we were having this shrimp salad and these magnificent wines. And then a couple of young men in their 30s in the club decided to play us a little uh, duet on their violins. And so we all sort of closed our eyes in the middle of these 350-foot redwoods and listened. And it was just exquisite. It was, it was the, the air, the place, the trees, the wine, the company, the, the peacefulness and the, the capacity of these two violinists. And it just was, it's one of those things that you, you realize that there's no filtering, it just comes, somehow gets right into your soul without any mediation. And they played and we all sat quietly and then we, we applauded them and they set down their violins on just on, on some benches near the edge of this redwood fence in this little camp. 
And it turns out they were Stradivarius. And I said, well, shouldn't these be locked up? I mean, these are extremely valuable instruments. They're just putting them down as if they were in a high school auditorium. And my host said, no one ever steals anything at the Bohemian Grove. But these were world-class instruments with men who understood how to use them in a perfect ambiance with wine. And somehow that is, I think, what you're talking about. It's the integration of different things. It's not music per se. It's music with food, with wine, with conversation, with friendship, with generosity of spirit, with ambiance. When you get all those things together, you feel that you're back in the 18th century, essentially. But then you get into your car and you left your radio on and it's, it's Michael Savage raving about homosexuals or Glenn Beck talking about how we're going to save America from the secularists. And then the noise comes right, starts to bombard you immediately from a culture that has forgotten what music represents at its best. But I'll never forget looking at those instruments and thinking, if I owned one, I would never let it out of my sight. But these men were just throwing them down. Well, I love the poetry of these instruments sitting out. You know, because when I put my violin away in the case, I don't really think this all the time, but, you know, it, it is a case. And some of the old cases were called coffin cases because they look Locked like coffins. Yeah. yeah, it's like, you know, you, I mean, this is a— Needs to breathe. Yeah, you know, and there to be under the trees themselves and to be let to just be there. We happened to go up to uh, Cremona. Uh, well, we, I mentioned we went to Cremona, and then we went up into the, uh, the, the Dolomites, uh, the Italian Alps, where Stradivari got his wood. But the night we got there, this place had a little balcony, and, and it's very alpine, sort of uh, the, the architecture and the town. And we went out on the porch, and this tremendous thunderstorm came up. And I got my, out my gear, and I recorded it, because at first when it, it started, there was a lot of lightning, but the thunder was so deep, and, and it would just you know reverberate through these valleys. And I got to thinking of these trees that are hundreds of years old and how many storms, how many times those vibrations, those sounds had gotten into them. And, of course, you know, maybe that's my nature. Maybe they come back out of the instruments. The trees have stored the sound, you think. Yeah. They're recording I, devices in their own sense. Yeah. And so I recorded the sound of the, uh, of the thunderstorm. So when I talk, when I do the show about going to that place and the interviews I did, I'm, I want to play that. I'm drawn to the idea of the music of the spheres, that in the Renaissance and the early scientific revolution, there were people who thought that there was a music in the cosmos that human ears couldn't hear, but that we could intuit somehow, and that people like Bach were literally trying to make physical, unheard sounds of the orbits of the planets and the cycles and epicycles and the laws of gravitation and so on. I find that a very intriguing idea that goes back to Plato and beyond. And I don't think that it can be dismissed, even though it's a little mystical. I think that now in modern physics, when we're looking at being able to detect gravitational fields without anything that we can perceive with our senses, and so that's become dark matter because it's, it's exercising a gravitational field, but we don't know how. We, but we can measure it. And then the idea of, uh, of the universe, in fact, accelerating rather than decelerating from the Big Bang, and uh, so that there must be something doing that, and that's dark energy. And I've heard different uh, calculations, but they always come up to somewhere between 70 and almost 90% of the universe we have no perception of. It's, it's beyond any of our lenses. 
We just don't can't know. I, I take some comfort from that. I do too. <laughs> and maybe music is a way to uh, to kind of bridge over that a little bit. Uh, and these instruments, uh, I think we're so attracted to them. Thank you very much. My delight. Thank you. We'll finish this podcast by listening to another composition by Corelli, the Allegro from his Sonata Number no. One, performed by members of the Trail Band. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And let me now share with you some lines of verse from the beginning and the end of a poem written by Stephen Vincent Benet, titled Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson, what do you say, under the gravestone, hidden away? I was a giver. I was a molder. I was a builder with a strong shoulder. Six feet and over, large-boned and ruddy, the eyes gray hazel, but bright with study. The big hands clever with pen and fiddle, and ready ever for any riddle. They call you a rascal? Well, they called me worse. You do grand things, sir, but lack the purse. I got no riches. I died a debtor. I died free-hearted, and that was better. For life was freakish, but life was fervent, and I was always life's willing servant. Life. Life's too weighty? Too long a haul, sir? I lived past eighty, and I liked it all, sir.